Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to this special episode of Batlisted, the podcast that brings new life to old books. We've transplanted the show lock, stock and barrel 260 miles north, perched on the banks of the River Weir to the Gala Theatre in the beautiful Cathedral City of Durham. We're here as part of the Durham Book Festival, which, as it was founded in 1990, is one of the country's oldest book festivals. I'm John Mitchinson, publisher at Unbound. Unbound's the website that brings authors and readers together to create something special and... I'm Andy Miller. And I'm the author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And uh, joining us on our trip to the north are the following guests. (laughs) Hello to Adele Stripe. Adele Stripe is a poet and novelist uh, whose first novel, Black Teeth and a Brilliant Smile, about the playwright Andrea Dunbar, was shortlisted for this year's Gordon Byrne Prize at the Durham Book Festival. According to experts, including me... (laughs) And John Mitchinson, it's a bloody great book. Uh, in Adele's personal life, she is married to the writer Ben Myers. We're also joined by the writer Ben Myers. <laughs> Under duress. He is a writer... That's not what you said in your email, Ben. Ben is a writer, is, is a writer and journalist whose third novel, Pig Iron, won the Gordon Byrne Prize in 2012. He has also won the Portico Prize for Literature and the Northern Writers Award... He's the author of seven novels, two this year alone. Incredible. John talked about one of them, The Gallows Pole, on an episode of Batlisted earlier this year. And the other, These Darkening Days, was published a few weeks ago. And according to experts, <laughs> including John Mitchinson, <laughs> it's bloody great too. In his personal life, Ben is married to the writer Lionel Shriver. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Adele Stripe. Sorry, bloody, bloody Wikipedia. That, right? uh, that is old news. That is, that is, that is, fa- that is fake news. Yeah. Fake news, Andy Miller. J'accuse fake, fake news. Um, why don't we give them a round of applause I to think. the hell of it? Yes, I, 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 these darkening days I, did, I reviewed elsewhere, somewhere other than this podcast. But uh, I, I did, I, I know Ben was happy with this, coined the phrase Elroy in a flat cap. Which, <laughs> I love that. Which is because it it's a gritty thriller set in the north. Um, the novel we're going to talk about today is Alma Cogan by Gordon Byrne, winner of the 1991 Whitbread Prize for fiction. Yeah. But before that, before we get into uh, Gordon Byrne... <laughs> As is traditional on this podcast, I look across the table and say to you, Andy, what have you been reading? Well, I've been reading this week. In fact, what I've been reading in the last couple of days, yesterday and today, is the Pevsner Buildings of England Guide to County Durham. (laughs) I'm just... If anyone doesn't know what the Pevsner Guides are, they were a wonderful series that was created in the early 1950s by Sir Nicholas Pevsner, 
And the County Durham volume, which is a guide to the architecture of the area, was one of the first ones that Pevsner wrote and one of the first ones that was published. It was published originally, I think, in 51 or 53. And these volumes of architectural guides are regularly updated. The Buildings of England series is now owned by Yale University Press, and they, they publish new editions uh, every 10 to 15 years or so because, of course, buildings rise and fall. If we look out the window at the venue here, we can see buildings of some of the buildings that were presumably put up here in Durham in the 1980s. Uh, 60s. 60s yeah. being taken down. <clears throat> but I just want to read the opening of what Pevsner himself wrote about Durham because he was passionate about this city. He says, um, and I should say, this, this volume covers County Durham. The section on the city itself is 100 pages long. I mean, it's a, a, a book within a book. And he says, he wrote, Durham is one of the great experiences of Europe to the eyes of those who appreciate architecture and to the minds of those who understand architecture. The group of cathedral, castle, and monastery on the rock can only be compared to Avignon and Prague, and by circumstance and planning, the old town has hardly been spoilt and is to almost the same degree the visual foil to the monuments that it must have been 200 and 500 years ago. The River Weir forms so close a loop that the town is surrounded on it by three sides. On the land side, the two medieval bridges are a bare 900 feet from each other. The position was ideal for a fortress, and it is ideal for the picture of a town. For a cathedral, it is as unusual as for a monastery. Avignon and Prague have been mentioned, but what distinguishes Durham visually from them is again something exceedingly English. The pictures of the buildings on the hill which one remembers all have foregrounds of green. The most moving one from the pre-Benz Bridge, in fact, shows the cathedral rising straight above the tops of the venerable trees up the steep bank, as if it were the vision of a Caspar David Friedrich or a Schinkel. Verdure mellows what would otherwise be too domineering, domineering the castle, domineering the site of the cathedral, domineering the architecture of the cathedral, and domineering inside the cathedral the throne of the bishop raised on a higher platform than the shrine of the saint. Now, I think the thing that's so wonderful about that, and what's so wonderful about this series of books, is that is inspired. Yeah. That writing is inspired writing in the true sense that Pevsner was able to come here. He got his wife to drive him because uh, Mrs. Pevsner did all the driving and made the sandwiches before they set out. <laughs> so she'd drive him around all day and then he would stay up until two in the morning typing in their bed and breakfast. And then she'd make sandwiches in the kitchen the next morning and they'd set off again. And out of that industry and her sacrifice came this brilliant series of important, wonderful, beautiful it's, books. It's one of those glorious... Um things that, I mean, which are not unique to this country, but I've put Pevsner alongside the Oxford English Dictionary and the Ordnance Survey. It's just this sort of desire to kind of, uh, to sort of a taxonomic desire to pin things down and to create these incredible reference books. But when I'm, my former life as a reference publisher, uh, Pevsner was always the, the, the standard bearer because what you want is reference books that are written by people real people who've got engagement with what they're doing, not sort of faceless panels of American academics, which a lot of reference books have become. But it, his voice shines through all of the... And I, my story about that, that particular book is when I grew up in the Northeast and then we emigrated to New Zealand when I was quite young. And when I was about 15 in a second-hand bookshop in Auckland in New Zealand, I found a copy of Pevsner's Durham. 
And it, was, it, it became a kind of sacred object to me because I could reconstruct not just uh, but bits of Sunderland, bits of the whole of the northeast that I remembered from my childhood from reading the Pevsner. When I came back when I was 18, it was, it was a book that I took everywhere when I came to retrace my steps. So there are probably bits I could recite from heart. It's, it's, uh, I, 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 the other thing, I, sorry, Ben, the other thing that I love about Pevsner, though, and uh, unfortunately in some of the bastard. recent editions, they've started smoothing this out. Yeah, he's really... <laughs> but he, but he's very grumpy. You know, he loves Durham, but if you've ever read Matt, uh, our producer was telling me earlier, if you ever, ever re- read his, um, his account of Cornwall, he's furious at that Cornwall is so big and so full of nothing of interest. Uh, uh, he, he, uh, and he's and there's hated, a little he's, bit some here. towns he's hated. I mean, they're absolutely hated. He lo- there's a bit here. Stand first. He does this thing. He does the, the, the sections of the books have a thing called a perambulation, where you can walk around the city with your Pevsner guide in your hand, with him as your guide, saying, "Look at this building. Look at that building." And here's a bit from the Durham perambulation two. Stand first on Framwellgate Bridge and look south to the incomparable view of the River Gorge, with only castle and cathedral above the trees, and the Prebens Bridge closing the vista at the bend of the river. Then look north at the disappointing jumble of Relief Road Bridge, (laughs) banal yet self-assertive 1960s office block and 1940 ice rink. (laughs) And I sort of... I think the 1940 ice rink has gone. I was looking for it yesterday. It's not there anymore. So even that, you know, the nostalgia for the things that he didn't like when you pick these up now, you think, oh, that's a shame. That carbuncle is no longer there. (laughs) Well, I I grew up in Durham as well, and... I haven't read any of that, but it's interesting that he talks about these uh, banks of greenery and that it sort of evoke Caspar David Friedrich. I know exactly what he means, these big ivy-covered banks. And when I was 15 or 16, me and my friends, we didn't see the kind of aesthetic artistry beauty of it. We saw it as an opportunity to climb up, and halfway up, about 100 feet up, there's a little ledge where we're able to sit and drink underage every Friday night out of, out of the way of you know the, the risk of getting beaten up by the, the toughs from the villagers <laughs> so the very banks he's describing we used to climb up and then we'd fill uh, carry a bag full of our empties hang it from a branch from the, he hasn't described that this is, the, this, is, this is the this is the Bevsner guy yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, very, it's very Gordon Byrne though I love that yeah, yeah. juxtaposition I, I must also say before I ask you John what you've been reading I've got one I have been reading this morning I was very fortunate I was approached I did a talk here at the Durham Festival yesterday um, called um, Author Confidential. I talked very a bit, amusing it was. I, thank you, John. I talked a bit about my mum's favourite author. My mum's favourite <laughs> author is the novelist Alan Titchmarsh. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, my mum will never hear this, so it's fine. And uh, so I was saying how whenever I write a book, she reads it and then says... Well, it's all right, Andrew, but when will you write something more like Alan Titchmarsh? <laughs> and uh, so I was out and about yesterday, and a gentleman called Lee, who is here in the audience, hello, Lee, uh, approached me in the street and said, I really enjoyed the event, I've got something for you. And he's bought me a copy of the novel Mr. McGregor <laughs> by Alan Titchmarsh. So I've started reading it, Lee. <laughs> I've started reading it. It's no good. No. You, you know, it's no, it's no, you just, you've made a bad thing worse with my mum. But anyway... John, what have you been reading? Um, I've been reading uh, The Very Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. Uh, ah. I, uh, the reason I've been reading it is I started it and I didn't finish it, and then he won the Nobel Prize, and uh, like a lot of people, I was pretty confident that Margaret Atwood was going to win, which would have been a very, very good thing. But if Margaret Atwood wasn't going to win it, then uh, I hadn't really thought about Ishiguro, but I, I, it made me think how many Ishiguro books I had read and loved 
and how I think he has done something almost unique in writing in, in, in kind of writing in, in a different genre for each book. He's the publisher's worst nightmare. He writes a completely different book each time. Mm. You know, you sort of you have the kind of Danton Abbey of the butler in 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 um in the famous one. <laughs> Which the ruins of the day. And you've got <laughs> the famous one. Never let me go, which is sort of sci-fi. But Berry Giant is comp- I, and I have to say it's I think it's a, a really very fine book and I I was amazed by it. I, I actually finished, finished reading it this morning and were very, very moved by the ending. I mean, the, it's, it has a sort of weirdly appropriate feel to Durham. I don't know, it's, it's, I don't know if you know, the, the, the book is set in a kind of imaginary uh, England in the, first, in the first millennium, between the, the departure of the Romans and the, and the kind of the, the Saxons are just beginning to arrive. But there are still ogres uh, kind of on the edges of, 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 of villages, and life is hard. There's a, and, and it turns out that the, the, the main character, who, an old man called Axel and his wife Beatrice, wake up one morning with this strange presentment that they need to go on a journey, and they don't quite know why. And it turns out the book is, the book is quite long. I mean, as everything Ishiguro does, it's exquisitely written. But it's like a sort of pale medieval tapestry, the way it evolves. They, yeah. they discover a, a broken old knight, Gawain, who is part of the old British past, you know, the heroic past of King Arthur. And, um, uh, and then there is, it turns out that the book is, they're, they're all, all their memories have, been, uh, uh, have basically been put on hold by the breath of a she-dragon. And without giving you the plot away, I mean, it sounds mad. I hear as myself saying these words. I think, why would anyone want to read a book like this? Um, but you should, because he is—he's—he's uh, got this amazing ability to tell these stories of fables. I was trying to think what it reminded me of, and I suppose, like I say, it, it, on one level, it has that kind of that medieval sort of saint's life feel to it. But the other thing suddenly struck me: it's like a—it's like it really is like a, a sort of samurai movie. You know, it's kind of broken samurai going on a journey. They're trying to find, it turns out they're trying to find their lost son. And again, you know, without giving spoilers away. And the the resolution at the end is is incredibly beautifully done. It's so unlikely that Ishiguro would be writing this. And yet, again, when you read it, you think it's all the Ishiguro stuff is there. Memory, time, the kind of of class. Because basically the the Saxons are are rebuilding Britain and the Britons are sort of clinging on to the past. And it's really interesting. Um, How many... Can I ask the audience members for a show of hands? How many of you here have read one or more novels by Kazuo Ishiguro? Now, I think that's pretty great pretty amazing, for a Nobel yeah. Prize winner. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm really happy that he's won it. I think he's yeah. a brilliant advertisement for fiction. I've, I've, read one, I, I've read one and I think maybe... You know, I think I've read one and a half novels by Kazuo Ishiguro. How about you, our guests, Ben and Dell? <laughs> you know how many we've read. <laughs> Why else would I ask? Uh, b- between us, we've read zero. <laughs> but ask, you can ask us about any other author. Yeah, I will. I'll be happy to. No, but I'm you are, you are, I have to say, you are two of the most... I love... You're very good at putting up on Instagram things the books that you're buying. And I just think you've got the most... I, I, I mean, the range of, of books that you read and that you get through, it's almost, it's almost in the Miller class. No, it's, no they're far above me. <laughs> I far mean, above it's, me. It's I, I'm, I'm interested, though. This is, we, we, we talked about this a bit earlier. Does Ishiguro winning the Nobel Prize for Literature make you more or less likely to read one of those novels? Uh, well, actually, it makes no difference to me um, because he has been recommended to me 
before by people who I trust. And Never Let Me Go is the one that has always popped up. Yeah. Um, so I think perhaps good. I will try at some point um, to purchase a copy. Do you think you were more or less likely to read one as a result of the prize being awarded? I, I would. I think so. Yeah, I, I would want to find out why, why him. I mean, right. I, know, I know loads about him, and, and the book John mentions Bury Giant. I've read so much. I mean, this is the problem, is you, sometimes you read so much about a novel yeah. that you mm. don't read it because you know the plot. You it, get all the different opinions. It and was mildly controversial. Ursula Le Guin came out viciously against it, uh, saying that, you know, it was not fantasy. And I don't, it seems to me to be a bit, a bit of a, a sort of a paper target because I don't think he'd ever said it was fantasy. And in fact, I think what he's doing is perhaps a bit more interesting, but that made her cross because there is this thing, if you're going to do fantasy, you should do it properly and take it seriously. And she felt it was somehow insulting to fantasy writers, which I don't really understand. It. I just think it's like all good writers, you, at some point you have to just relax into their vision of, 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 of reality. You just have to... You just have to go with it. I mean, yeah. if, well, it, let's let that is appropriate to what we're yeah. here to talk about the, 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 the writer's vision of reality. We'll be back in just a sec. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of the Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India? and the world. I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. So we're here to talk about a novel that was published, as John said, in 1991, called Alma Cogan by the late Gordon Byrne. And I'm going to start the discussion by asking Ben, I think, as I do on these occasions, where were you when you first heard about Gordon Byrne or heard about this book or read this book or, or whatever? I've, well, I've been thinking about this quite a bit and it's hard to pinpoint exactly because it seems like it's kind of drifted in and out of my consciousness over the years. But I think, as I said, I grew up here and I was studying just about to start failing my A-levels <laughs> when the book came out. And I remember reading about Gordon Byrne in the local press. There's some good sort of free local arts magazines in Newcastle. It was less about the book and more about him. It probably sounds naive now, but I wasn't aware that there was that writers really came from the northeast <laughs> at the time. I, there's Pat Barker, but at the time, age 16, I, I read about this guy who's from the west end of Newcastle. I, I don't know how much you know about his, his upbringing. Was pretty humble, you know, out, yeah. outdoor toilets and poverty basically. But he decided to be a journalist, which is what I wanted to do at the time, and in fact, still am to some extent. And he, had, he, he went to university, but he had no formal journalistic training, and he basically went and interviewed someone and sold the article to the local paper, which then sold to the Times, I think. Yeah. And then he was away, and, and I read this story about a guy who went, right, I'm going to go to Newcastle, and he didn't smooth off his Geordie edge. I think he used it to his advantage, his sort of confidence and his brashness and his sort of bullshit detector I suppose there's a he writes brilliantly about art but he does it without pretension so I read about this guy who who you know London seems a long way away from Durham when you're kind of a teenager but I, 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 so I became aware of him and and this book that he'd written called Alma Cogan about some sort of faded 
you know, primetime music star that I'd heard about. Um, but I actually only properly read it about 10 years ago. I wrote a novel called Richard about the disappearance of Richie Edwards mm. from the Manic Street Preachers. So it was a novel about a real person. But it was, I, I remember about Al McCogan, it was just a book that feels haunted all the way through. It's like one big exercise in foreshadowing. There's something bad is coming. And I kind of wanted to do something similar with Richard because we all, the reader would know that this guy is about to disappear. So I've, I've read it about three or four times over the years and it just seems to have been there since I was about 16. Adele, when did you, can you remember when you first read the novel? Um, it was probably Ben gave me it when we were living in Nunhead. Um, so I think that was probably about 10, 10 years ago. But I first came across Gordon Byrne when I was living in a, a, a rat hole in Leeds, a back-to-back, and um, I heard about um, On the Way to Work, which was his book that he wrote with Damien Hurst. Yeah. And I was interested in that book because it was the stories, it was interviews with Damien, but Damien was talking about his life in Leeds quite extensively in that book. And there is a picture of Damien in there and he'd been into the Leeds mortuary and there's a dead guy's head that Damien has pushed his face up against and he's about 16 years old and he's dossing about with the corpses and it's it's awful it's awful but it's also quite funny um so that was where I first came across Gordon Ben was that book yeah it's another upbeat episode of Death memory. Death memory. <laughs> I mean, it's worth saying that, that this is a novel, but we should explain a little bit. I mean, should we do... A, do you want to... Would a blurb be a, a, a good Yeah, moment? I think it would be useful for the audience to, uh, at home and, and here, if we can just position the book for people, because it's, yeah. it's quite I mean, an unusual premise. It's quite an unusual premise, and, and Gordon himself was known... I guess he was kind of influenced by the new journalism, by... I mean, I think reading The Executioner's Song by Norman Mailer when he was young, really influenced what he did. So he started writing uh, kind of non-fiction. And uh, he, he's fond of quoting John Berger. It's quite a good background to the idea of, of, of why his fiction isn't much like a lot of other fiction. He said there was a quote by John Berger that I had in mind, that imagination is not, as most people think, the ability to invent. It's the ability to disclose what already exists. So... Already you've got somebody who's thinking about fiction in a rather different way, and a lot of his references, fictional references, um, are to writers who don't write. W.G. Zabelt was one of his, his favourites, again, who write novels that, aren't, that could almost be non-fiction. But here, on the back of the Faber edition, which doesn't have, I think, a particularly great cover, we'll talk about the, the, the iconic covers in a minute, but it has a reasonable blurb. How does it feel to never be allowed to die? In his classic debut novel, Gordon Byrne takes Britain's biggest-selling vocalist of the 1950s and turns her story into an equation of celebrity and murder. Fictional characters jostle for space with real-life stars, from John Lennon to Doris Day and Sammy Davis Jr., as Byrne, in a breathtaking act of appropriation, reinvents the popular culture of the post-war years. As beautifully written as it is disturbing... Alma Cogan remains a stingingly relevant exploration of the sad, dark underside of fame. 
And we'll just, um, just so, uh, I'll say a little bit about Alma Cogan. So, so she was born in 1932 and she died in 1966. The idea of this novel is that, in fact, she didn't die in 1966, that she's still alive and she narrates the novel from the late 1980s. It's written in the late 1980s. And she was known in her era, she was very popular in the 1950s as the girl with the giggle in her voice. And Gordon clearly felt that she represented a kind of pre-Beatles pre-rock music uh, era that he wanted to write about. And insofar as there is a plot in Alma Cogan, Alma is... She's a a hyper-articulate woman in her 70s looking back on on her life. And she goes to London where she meets a couple of her old friends and has a a meal and and then travels to the house of a collector, an obsessive collector who has basically gathered an archive. She got rid of all her... She lives in a small cottage in a small coastal village. Adele, I wonder if you've got something that you could... We've set up so people understand what the, what the premise of the book is. Have you got something you could read that yes. might give us an idea of how Gordon then tries to carry that into prose? I'm going to read a small... A section from the opening page of the book and I think it actually tells us quite a lot about Burns' descriptive um, observational style of prose. He uses litany quite a lot throughout yeah. the book um, and I think that's one of his great skills actually, being able to do that in a compelling way. Um, so I have chosen a particularly visceral section um, <laughs> um, so I will give it a go. I can't do it in Alma Cogan voice, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you'll have get, to... I can hear a giggle in your voice. <laughs> you're going to have to forgive me. Uh, I think the giggle, the, one, without giving too much spare at the novel, the giggle has gone by the time she's narrating this book. Okay. <laughs> so um, here she is actually describing her fans. And of course, this is a book about celebrity and fame. So I will begin. The women pressed close, smelling of dandruff, candlewick, camphor and powdered milk, thinly disguised by a top note, as the perfume manufacturers put it, of evening in Paris, or Cote Liamont, or some other cheerful, rapidly evaporating technical estink from Woolworths. Despite the fact that they were wearing their best clothes, the men gave off stomach-heaving waves of dog and diesel, Boot dubbing, battery fluid, pigeon feed, dried cuttlefish, cooked breakfasts, rough tobacco, weak old hair oil, and belched back beer. They were odours that I unwillingly but instinctively associated with scenes of domestic mayhem. Children scalded, wives abused, small dogs dropped from high windows (laughs) and of the time when the scraps of paper being so urgently thrust forward for my signature would be found curled up in the back of some sideboard drawer or dust-lined wallet I can remember I remember I became a I started as a bookseller in December 1990 and I remember sitting in the tea room at Waterstones in Brighton and reading the, for a publisher's catalogue for basically the first time ever, and seeing this book described, and a proof copy had arrived at the shop. A proof copy is when they send them to booksellers and, and journalists early to attract interest. And Adele, I can remember the bit you've just read. I remember reading it on my tea break 
you know, that, that, that terrible, grubby, seedy thing. And after that first paragraph thinking, I'm in. Yeah. You know, that, it's so wonderful, that. It sets the scene so perfectly in terms of both the milieu that he wants to write about and the tone of voice. But, again, the fact that he, like, he describes people as smelling as of small dogs dropped from windows it kind of make, make, doesn't make sense but it does when you when it, like Adele said it's a litany of details and I think the, the entire book is an accumulation of details and observations and ephemera and artefacts and memories I think John was almost generous in describing the plot because there isn't really a plot at all is there and there isn't really any characters no. as such but they're, 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 they're kind of kind of ghostly figures uh, uh, in particular one who I'm sure we'll get to who appears at the end of the book but it's a, it's a it's a book that every time I read it I get a bit more from it each time but uh, primarily it seems to be about fame and celebrity which is something that Byrne was actually ahead of his time in discussing really because celebrity now is a word that has come to take on a new or, uh, or to take on no meaning at all really and I think he was fascinated with um, the idea of fame. I mean, it's described on the, the edition I've got is the American edition, and it's described as a dream memoir. But I would describe it more as a nightmare biography, yeah. or or a haunted <laughs> portrait, perhaps. Yeah, I, th- I think the the obsession with celebrity, which kind of uh, he he wrote brilliantly about. Both, I mean, the celebrity on one hand of of, of you know famous sports people. One of his early books was a brilliant inserted himself into the world of professional snooker, a book called Pocket Money, but also of, you know, people who commit crimes. Uh, he famously obviously wrote the, the definitive book on, on uh, Peter Sutcliffe. Um, and again, Happy Like Murder is on the, on the Wests. Um, really, really difficult books to read, but br- brilliant because of the way that he, he did his research. He, he was interested in the fact that, that he says something about celebrity, which I think is quite... He says, celebrity is a thin, weightless thing and mostly exists as a series of electronically generated pulses and pixels. Often it is literally without foundation or substance. It is an inevitable fallout of the galloping and still ongoing process which has seen the electronic society of the image, the daily bath we all take in the media, replace the real community of the crowd. And this idea of, of, of community, he said, you know, no, it, communities where nobody used the word community but everybody was part of one the kind of it's it's more than just the north south divide it's about a moment in history i think where things change and that that you know from alma cogan to the beatles and you know we'll talk about about, about some of his other books in that co- connection he well. strikes i've read this book again this week i hadn't read it so it's, it's the first time i've read it since 1991 so i was 23 when i read it i'm 49 now so a significant gap of time and life have occurred to me in the intervening period. And it's exactly the same for me. I, uh, I, yeah. I was also a bookseller, also read it, and weirdly, I couldn't, I'm, I can't, I'm amazed how little of it I remembered. I remembered that yeah. uh, we'll talk about the big, well, the, the di- big reveal the at the end. The difference is, one of the differences is, because Gordon sadly is no longer with us, and you can see his work as a whole, yeah. which you couldn't then, it struck, it struck me coming back to it and having read some of his other books in the interim. He was a journalist whose work in both 
fiction and non-fiction and sort of sliding backwards and forwards between the two, journalism is often his subject. The relation of journalists and the things that journalists, British journalism is obsessed with. Mm -hmm. Celebrity, true crime, sport, news. Mm -hmm. And then into that pot, you also focus, it strikes me, Ben, something you've written about. He is, there's two other things going on. And they are art, Mm -hmm. because he was a brilliant writer about art and knew a great deal about art, and the North. He's a great, as you said, Northern writer. So you've got this interesting stew of all these things that you tend to find in various mixtures in each of his books, whether it's a novel or whether it's non-fiction or whether it's something in between. Yeah, and I think some of it predates the sort of current obsession that we have now with, particularly with fame and celebrity... um, there's a, he has a, there's a great quote from that he has Alma Cogan say very early on in the book, which applies like today more than ever. She says, to be famous is to be alone, but without feeling lonely. Mm. And I think that's what a lot of, you know, the, the big brother era of celebrity, I think that's what a lot of people crave. They want the adoration of fame and celebrity so that they feel less alone. I, and I'm, I mark that passage too, because it always reminds me of one of the bits of the Beatles anthology that stuck in my mind. I can't remember which one of it. It said when they would, they would be booked into the whole floor of a hotel when they were touring, and they'd always end up in one or other of the bathrooms, you know, laughing and drinking. And it's just that sort of weird sense of, of, you know, the idea that, you know, four friends would want to have this vast kind of space to themselves. It's completely misunderstood the, the, the notion, but that thing of being, being a fa- fame, being alone but not being uh, lonely, it's, it's re- really, it's co- key to this book, I think. Adele, did you think that, um, how, how do you felt the, feel the book stands up as a book about celebrity written before the internet? I uh, well, Michael Hur describes it as a ruthless antidote to nostalgia, <laughs> and I think that's right Brilliant. because there is always this kind of worry when writing about the past that we try and look at it through the rose-tinted glasses and see it in a different way. She is kind of aware of her own celebrity and fame, but she's walked away from it. And she's now living in, when she is speaking in the book, she's reflecting upon it and trying to piece together her past as a celebrity. So she's living quite an isolated existence. She's living in a cottage surrounded by other people's things. And it's, it's quite strange, like, how has she ended up there? What happened to her? Did she lose all of her money? It leaves you with all of these questions about this character of Alma Cogan. But then there are sections in the book where she is almost, it's quite clever, and I, I kind of describe it as a Russian doll effect. So she goes to the Tate Gallery, and she looks at the portrait that Peter Blake has made of her. Brilliant. And there is a catalogue, an official, yeah. it looks like an official Tate catalogue listing of the Peter Blake Alma Cogan portrait. And he's written it in a style that is, you, you would not, you would think that that actually existed, uh, but it's a fiction. But that is um, a biography within a memoir, because it, yeah. it's kind of a fictional memoir, really, yeah. Alma Cogan. So it's really clever how well, he does it. Well, we've got a clip here of Gordon talking about why he wanted to write about Alma Cogan specifically and what Alma Cogan represented to him in terms of the subjects that he returned to write about. So if we could hear that now. 
popular culture, as we now know it, but we didn't know it 35 years ago, is newness, sexiness, newness. The two are interchangeable. So television coming into people's homes and British uh, post-war homes obviously was the most exciting thing that had happened probably since the war. And in a way, it seemed like her life, her only life, was in front of a theater audience or a television camera. And in a way, when her celebrity was taken away from her in the early 60s, after the Beatles and the Liverpool stuff all happened, she almost stopped living in a, in a fairly kind of essential way. You know, her, something about her life had kind of seeped out of her. Um, and, and that being robbed of the television camera and being robbed of large audiences somehow robbed her of a part of herself that she felt she needed to go on existing as this media person. You know, and she died when she was very young, 34. People feel that their own small lives are in some way compensated for by these large lives. That's the role that celebrities play in post-war life. So uh, he, he actually met Alma Cogan. And when Gordon was a teenager, he was an autograph hunter, which is not surprising, Brilliant. really. I didn't know that. That's and he met her in Newcastle off the train, and he carried her suitcase to the hotel. And he must have only been 14 or 15, so that's where his kind of obsession with Alma began. Oh my god, well, that is amazing. I didn't know that. That's mind blowing. I am gonna, there's a, the, the reason why that's mind blowing is um, that it's is, really good to hear though, because you can't, you couldn't write no. about the obsessive, the obsessive details <laughs> but, of fan behavior. Well, he never mentioned that in any of the, no, for, as far as I can tell, in any of the press. But it's that he, in the, I, I want to, sorry everybody, spoilers to some extent. <laughs> In the final chapter of Alma Cogan, I read this last night and I was scratching my head. I couldn't, I couldn't make head nor tail of it without giving too much away. There's a scene at the end of the book where the narrator, who we assume is Alma, is driven up onto Saddleworth Moor and buries a couple of mementos on the moor. And the last lines of the book are... I cut a small grave for the door plaque with the words Alma's room and the crinoline lady that I am carrying in my pocket. I will pack the peat around it with my fingers and close the lid of turf and make certain before I leave it that the moor has been put back in its original state. And I read that and I thought, why would Alma Cogan do that? And then I thought, well, Alma Cogan wouldn't do that. But Gordon Byrne would do that. <laughs> and the last chapter, it suddenly occurred to me, I had this little revelation of thinking, he's done a brilliantly Gordon Byrne-ish thing without telling you that I, who has been Alma Cogan for the majority of the book, has switched in the final chapter to be I, Gordon Byrne. So what you've just told me... Well, there's more that, that you, can, Adele, can share, but perhaps about the hair. Yeah, well... Uh... Gordon had really, uh, like, a strange hairdo. So he was bald, but he had, like, this skullet thing going on where it was, like, really long at the back. Should, was, should, we, call, should we explain what a skullet is for anyone? Yeah, well, you, a skullet is a mullet, but the skull show yeah, it. Skull, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sort of, like, well, I don't know, medieval executioner haircut from, <laughs> yeah. from uh, you know. And that was his look when he was writing Alma. 
And apparently he grew his hair out and he would, because he was channeling Alma's hair <laughs> and he used to back comb it out and comb it out in the morning. Um, and that was the look for writing the book. But, but, but in, there's, there's a piece at the time, uh, for his second book, The Guardian did a big profile and they describe him turning up for the interview and he's wearing um, sort of beige trousers, which look, they described as being looking as if he'd made them himself, and, it, and, and he'd, grow, he'd grown his skull out into kind of oily ringlets. <laughs> yeah. And this was for the. And this is a guy with a very keen artistic eye, turned up, uh, and I think maybe slippers or something, or yeah. some slip, awful slip-on shoes. And this is for his. And, and the, a couple of carrier bags. Carrier bags full of booze. Yeah. <laughs> and and this is a journalist who's turning up for his probably his first major profile um, so I think that just sort of shed some light I mean, I mean maybe he was doing a kind of stars in their eyes Al McCogan in the entire book was as you said Andy <laughs> channeling he, he, he well yeah, go on, I was just going to say he was the thing I, I, I met Gordon <laughs> I mean several times and, 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 and always liked him but I liked him because he was completely uncompromising and you never quite knew what you were going to get from him he could be incredibly friendly or he could be fantastically blunt I mean a couple of things he said to me were, were, were kind of blood curdlingly <laughs> to the point but well, um, you can't really no I can't really no <laughs> excellent <laughs> but, you know, press in your the, red in button the, now in, in, the, in the bar afterwards <laughs> the thing is he for a lot of people I think for anybody who had a, a, any background in the north he had this talismanic quality because he wrote when he wrote the Sutcliffe book, I mean, he lived yeah, for three like years and he went out hotel. drinking with Sutcliffe's brothers most yep. evenings. I mean, it, the d- degree of immersion mm-hmm. that he got into to write that book, which is still... It's called Somebody's Husband, Somebody's, somebody's Son. son. Uh, and it puts him on the map as a... a cla- I mean, it's still a, a classic in its own right. It, it's impeccably yeah. written. It, I, I just kind of think it, it, it's one of the definitive books on Sutcliffe I've read many of them I still go back to Gordon Byrne I think he nails West Yorkshire and the community and the culture and the life that Sutcliffe had the family life that he had because Gordon Byrne kind of understood that world he he was accepted in Bingley, he wasn't seen as an outsider whilst he was living there. He wasn't. I don't think it to the Sutcliffe family. He was a writer or journalist poking about. He was a guy who was drinking with them, who was probably yeah. going to write something. That, you know, that's how embedded he was. Yeah, and I would completely. say the same about he was completely immersed. The Fred and Rose West book, book Happy yeah. Like Murderers, which I've read twice, and it's 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 a it's a punishment yeah. of a book. But I mean that in the best possible way. Because I think he, it's he the best said, crime he, book know, I've ever he, read. He, I think. he felt he'd been chosen. You know, there was nobody else who could write it. But he, he, he I remember him. He said to me, "You know, I, I, I wish I hadn't had to go there." Really. But he, I mean, I think, I think the, 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 the idea of being haunted that you yeah. talk about. He, he felt haunted by the stuff that he had to look at for that book. Yeah, it, it, it affected him. So, so we've been told. Yeah, I mean, what, nightmares, uh, which kind of, and and the kind of psychic punishment that you go through as a writer to have to write that kind of book the material he went to the west trial and it you just wonder kind well, of it, what it, he had to take yeah. on in order to write well that. it was while he was covering the west trial that he wrote his second novel full of love mm, you can tell partly as a way of just offloading think, yeah. some of the the trauma of sitting there listening and it's probably no it. coincidence that that book is it's ostensibly about the disintegration of a kind of middle-aged journalist who's falling <laughs> yeah. apart partly about you know the, the, I, I imagine there's a lot of him in there 
uh, or, or his career on a slightly different path. Uh, I just want to um, go back to, to Al McCogan for a minute. What's I, I'm going to say two things about reading the book again. And one of them, I'm going to slightly play devil's advocate, is when I was reading the first half of the book again, somebody on Twitter, who I think may be here today, had said, to, when, I, when I'd revealed that we were doing this book, they said, oh yeah, yeah, I like that book. I had no problem with Alma Cogan uh, still being alive. What I couldn't understand was why she talked like Don DeLillo. <laughs> <laughs> and... <laughs> Right, And so the first half of the book, I was reading it thinking, oh, that's a heavy burden to bear. It, there is some evidence of DeLillo in the prose, right? Because in my opinion, clearly Gordon loves a massive fan. You know what yeah. I think it is? I think, mm, what is this reminding me of? A uh, hyper-articulate, uh, lonely woman uh, uh, th- looking back and trying to make sense of a, a life that has been disappointing to her. Yes, it's Anita Bruckner. It's Anita Bruckner that I'm suddenly <laughs> failing, but through through a strange DeLillo kind of, you know, filter. But... You've managed half a podcast without <laughs> yeah. mentioning Anita Bruckner. I did. I suddenly thought <laughs> Alma, Cogan, you met, Alma Cogan is a And you Bruckner. mentioned her, Mitch, not me. Right. <laughs> For the record. Alma Cogan is a Bruckner heroine. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but what I was going to say was, I, I my memory of reading the book in 1991 was that uh, when, I, when it came to the last 50 pages of the book, and we're slightly skirting around what happens in the last 50 pages of the book. We should talk about that. It was the last 50 pages that I remembered as the whole book. Mm. Yeah. And so any reservations that I had about the voice early on kind of get left behind in that final fugue of 50, 60 yeah. pages. Particularly, and this is relevant to the, to the second thing I want to say, John, you mentioned there's a character called Francis McLaren who is a collector of Alma Cogan memorabilia. And towards the end of the book, Alma goes and stays in his house in one of the most uh, unpleasant and creepy scenes imaginable. Okay? Very awkward. Awkward, but brilliant. So, when Alma Cogan was published in hardback, as authors do, Gordon did several events to promote it. One of which was at Waterstones in Charing Cross Road. Don't look for it, it isn't there anymore. I remember coming up from Brighton and I went specifically, because I love the book so much, to Waterstones in Charing Cross Road to see Gordon read from it and talk about it. And when he came out onto the, like, the little stage where we are now, or the equivalent thereof, you could see him look in the audience and mutter something to the chair and, and, and shake his head slightly. Anyway, so Gordon reads from the book... He answers questions from the chair, and then the chair says, and now it's time for questions from the audience. (laughs) And a man immediately puts his hand up in the front row and says, Gordon, I'd like to ask you why you came to my house to look at my Alma Cogan memorabilia, and then you put me in your novel. (sighs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And Gordon went, well, it's a character, you know, it's not really, and you were so helpful to me. And then I saw Gordon in the pub afterwards, that's not what he was saying in the pub afterwards. That's all, uh, that's all I'm going to say. But, but he skirted very close in his books, as a journalist would, and this is one of the things I want to talk to you about, Ben, as a journalist would, in terms of his relationship with characters who he then fictionalised or didn't fictionalise. Yeah, I think Gordon Byrne showed that you can merge the two. I mean, again, perhaps he was ahead of his time because there's so much discussion now about truth in journalism and factual accuracy. And I I believe it's all storytelling. Journalism is storytelling, and so is fiction. And I think you can use fiction to tell... I mean, this is is probably better than any biography you would read about Alma Cogan. Because it's it, probably it quite caused, factually caused a lot accurate. Of, uh, Alma Cogan's sister 
was extremely kind of well, upset the, by it. The problem is that, yeah, if you adopt the approach that he, mm. that he did, they're, they're often victims, I guess, or people who maybe don't appreciate the artistic intent the, uh, the, like the, I mean, there's no point in skirting around it. The, 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 central, the central kind of collision in the book is that the, re, the reveal is that when Ian Brady and Myra Henley were torturing Leslie Ann Downey, the song that was playing in the background was Alma Cogan singing The Little Drummer Boy. But actually it wasn't. It wasn't. It was the Ray Conniff singers. It, it was the Ray Conniff Because singers. I had to check. That's right. And that's, that's in the book as well. Yeah. yeah. But... She had to check the, in the character yeah. in the book. The, the, yeah. the quest is to find that is is to, is to find that out, and obviously, so what he's doing is he Gordon's bringing mm-hmm. together the two things that really interest him: celebrity, and the celebrity of, of, of famous people, and the seedy underbelly. I mean, the book is that the, the point is it's not that it, things all went to Helena Hancock in the sixties. It's that in the 50s, although it looked like the girl with the giggle and the voice, and it all looked, but the terrible scenes of sort of sex on buses and that kind of 1950s TV entertainment was every bit, possibly even more seedy and degenerate than anything that came after it. And it's just that she can't make the transition. She is as a sort of a a fictional character because she is a fictional character, you know, being sort of consumed by the audiences. So that bringing that together is what gives the book its kind of power and it's no doubt what you know that's why the original cover which has got a picture of Alma Kogan and the iconic picture of uh, Myra Hindley and that um, I, I read it you as, have a theory about um, Alma and Myra well, yeah, why yeah, he to, used them to, the thing that I take from the book is that really it's about two sides of yeah. one woman uh, you know the yin and yang of, uh, of the human personality or female personality so you've got someone who's very uh, Outwardly very wholesome uh, and represents the good times of post-war Britain. And then you've got a woman who tortured and murdered children. And they've both got got powerful haircuts. They've got strong eye makeup. They're both icons of their time. But they both seem to me to represent the kind of two sides of one one coin. One represented innocence, uh, hope in the future. And Myra Hindley, as most people would probably admit, sort of represented the death of something in Britain, not just the literal death, but the death of innocence. innocence. You know, she, in the same way that Peter Sutcliffe has totally cast a shadow across Yorkshire and the North, the Moors murderers killed something in the psyche well, of the North of England. Gordon, the famous quote from Gordon is, almost everything I have written has been a bit about celebrity and how for most people celebrity is a kind of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, the thing is, we were talking about this, there is no way... I suspect that a book would come out with this cover now. And yet the cover is so good for telling you what the book is about. The book is about how if you achieve a certain kind of notoriety, fame, celebrity, all different slightly nuanced things, that plus the passage of time means your actual deeds will be forgotten and you come to represent, as the pictures on this cover show, an almost Warhol-like yeah. flash mm. frozen moments and actually who is the most famous of the two women on that cover is it Alma Cogan or is it Myra Hindley yeah. and that probably tells us something about who we are mm. and how history uh, records absolutely you know the the perpetrators of uh, crimes there's something he said about novelists he wrote an, an, another novel which where he we we're talking about news and journalism where he, he wrote the news as a novel which is I, I can't remember. Was the year two thousand and two thousand and seven? Born yesterday, which you talked to Born yesterday, which is again another really uh, original book. 
But he, in that book, he writes about Gordon Brown, for example. He writes about the McCanns. Anyway, this is what he said about novelists. Novelists, he says, the lucky ones, have the time and are or should be unaligned. They are able to make connections between the visible and the invisible world that maybe aren't immediately apparent. How the sight of a prime minister so clearly uncomfortable in his own skin or the rolling story of two middle-class parents who've been named official suspects in the disappearance of their daughter can breed a wider underlying unease which finds its way into the dream life of those of us on the ground. And that just seemed to me, that idea of this seeping into our dream life yes, is sort of what great fiction does do to us. And I think, I'm not sure whether Alma Cogan is his best book and I'm not sure whether it, even you might say it's a, it's, it's a success on all, on, for all the things you said. But it is, it's like nothing else. I think that's the thing when you reread Gordon Byrne. I also think there's a really strong poetic element to this novel and there, there are lines on every page yeah. that are golden they just jump out at you there was one in particular that I wanted to read one short paragraph um, and it's just a description of hands and he does it so well my hands as it happens are the part of me that has altered most from being porky soft and mottled they have turned spartan and squared off like the hands of market traders and old landladies that I admired, women who thought nothing of going into a chicken up to the elbow to haul out the giblets or into a stop lavatory to the shoulder, who unflinchingly saw to the corpses of family and neighbours and rose well before anybody else in the house to lay fires on chilly, misty mornings. Brilliant. Um, we would like to read. mention uh, briefly, John, wouldn't we, that we both recently read, I read last week, a book called, one of Gordon's other books called um, Best and Edwards, uh, which is a book about football, about um, fame, celebrity. fame, celebrity, all those things. Death, but John, death. John, you, you, we were talking about it last night, you made a, such a good point about it. I mean, I, I dislike sport very much, and I, <laughs> I, I dislike books about sport very much. And you don't uh, have to like sport to attend. Oh, it's, it's such a wonderful book. Um, but you were making the point about it it's almost like he wrote it 15 years after he wrote Alma Cogan and it's almost like the themes of Alma Cogan revisited with the benefit of hindsight the great Duncan Edwards uh, who would have gone on to Captain England would have, would have been died in, in Munich and he represents a kind of uh, in a way that sort of community culture football before, before the money happened and then George Best is the kind of the He's like the sort of, the, he's the beginning of celebrity football culture and who famously, you know, you know where did it all go, where did it all go mm. wrong? I mean, drinks himself uh, into an early grave. And it's, uh, the book, the book is, is, is brilliant meditation, I think, on, 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 on exactly the same themes as Alma Cogan, but done from, done, done. From, where a, Edwards represents Alma Cogan. Alma Cogan. And Best represents... Best, yeah, the, the 60s and the Beatles. It's the same, it is basically the same, the same passage. And, and of course what he does, like, like Hindley and Thing on the cover, he just makes that juxtaposition really it's wonderful. Sing. It's a brilliant book. As is Alma Cogan. And I think had he, had he you know, was he, would he still be alive now? I think he would have 
He'd have written a book about Jade Goody. Well, yeah, he was he was fascinated with Jade Goody. <laughs> he was Goody. obsessed by well, her, yeah, we, and he has he had all of her books. He has them. Um, you, I mean, do you think? It, I mean, I feel yeah. strongly that he was a he's a massive loss. That he would have gone on to write other, maybe even better. Yeah, things. There's, uh, I mean, we never met him. We never knew him. We've, we've kind of we've got this odd uh, position in that. Because I won the first Gordon Byrne Prize, the, the actual prize was getting to go and temporarily live in his country cottage in the borders in Scotland, yeah, which, which is... His to, partner, Carol, sort of... Uh, yeah, they very that. generously set up yeah, a trust, amazing. and Damien Hurst is involved, and, you know, they, they, they want to encourage writers and artists, and, it, and, and they often choose people like us who have no money and very little profile. And, uh, and you go and stay amongst Gordon's stuff... Just like in Alma Cogan, where she goes and lives in some in somebody else's house, surrounded by their things, uh, you go and and are surrounded by Gordon's things. It's literally things. notebooks and post-it notes. Yeah. we've yeah. literally slept in his bed, and I've, my, my last three novels have been edited at his desk, surrounded. This is in no way unsettling. This is, <laughs> it's so Gordon Byrne. It's brilliant. Well, it's yeah. So I reread Alma Cogan this week and thought, well, I've kind of lived that, but without the horrific ending and without the the my Hindley connection but in terms of being surrounded by someone's life someone who I didn't know but I admire and have sort of felt haunted but by but you can be haunted in a good way can't you you can be aware of a presence and inspired by it rather than but we know him through his words and through his book collection so obviously if you pull out books from his shelves um, like an English journey is full of his post-it notes uh, for North of England home service where he was making notes so he's left you uh, his post-it notes in the books, That's which so, is it, so interesting. It's, yeah, it's both interesting and p- perfect. There's we've a book to be written about. Oh, no, we've got to stop. <laughs> Thanks to Ben Myers, to Adele Stripe, to our producer Matt Hall, to the Gala Theatre in Durham and the Durham Book Festival. Uh, thanks once again to our sponsors, Unbound. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. <laughs> you can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks. You can 